For as long as we have lived, for as long as we have known, love has carried us. You're listening to the Sermon Podcast of Genesis West in Robbinsdale, Minnesota. You can find out more about us at genesiscove.org. Enjoy the teaching. The reading today is Luke's chapter 6, verses 27 through 38. But I say to you that listen, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And for, from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you, and if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love your enemies, do good, and lend expecting nothing in return. Your reward, will, your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put in your lap. For the measure you give will be the measure you get back. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Abby. Good morning, everybody. Uh, as Steve said, thank you for making it through Snowpocalypse 2019, part the sixth, I think we're on. I keep forgetting, do we have more Rocky movies or more snowstorms this month? I'm, I'm a little short on that math. Uh, but I do thank you all for being here today, and I know that there's some people that showed up uh, just because I'm up here speaking. So I'm very, very grateful for your presence. Um, my name is Dan Cook. For those of you who don't know me, I can say for the first time as I'm speaking up here, I'm a member of Genesis Covenant Church. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of fun. Uh, I'm also in my second year at Bethel Seminary in the Masters of Divinity program, which means I've learned just enough at this point to truly be dangerous. This is going to be fun. So the topic today, that's the microphones running around on me here, uh, is loving your enemy. So I'd like to pick the light ones. Uh, two sermons ago, I think I talked about the nature of sin. Last sermon was on Satan. Now we're loving enemies. So I'd like to keep it nice and light. Loving your enemies, but it's an important, it's an important concept because it gets mentioned multiple times throughout the Gospels, right? So it's important to understand why it's important. And I think there's a clue in today's text. If you, look at chap, if you look at verse 35 of Luke chapter 6, and by the way, I'm going to be citing several scripture passages today. Uh, there are Bibles in front of you if you want to pull those out. It's a different version than what I'm using, but it's close enough. Or you can have your phone out, whatever you want to use. But in this passage from Luke, verse 35 gives us, I think, the clue as to why this is important. It says, but love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. And now here comes the why. Your reward will be great, and you'll be children of the Most High. Now, if that doesn't set off alarm bells to Protestants a little bit, it kind of should, right? Because it sounds a little bit like salvation through works. We profess salvation is by grace alone. So what does this mean, right? It's the combination of the two phrases that I think 
gives us the key. Your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High. You have to remember that the story of the Bible is for the first three chapters God's creating and for the next 65 and 7 eighths books, he's trying to fix what we screw up. It's the story of the redemption and the renewal of creation. That's the story of the Bible. It's God's story. It's not ours. But he does ask us to be part of it. That's the idea of covenant. That he sets a trajectory out in front of us for our lives. And to the degree that we live into that trajectory, we get the exciting opportunity to be part of that renewal and redemption experience. And I think that's, to the degree we are able to do that, that's what being children of the Most High means. And the reward is, look, the kingdom is all around us right now. And to the degree we live into that trajectory, to the degree that we are children of the Most High, we help bring that kingdom into fuller existence right here, right now. We can't bring it to its fullest existence. That's Christ's job. But to the degree we live into that trajectory, we're able to help bring it about a little bit more right now, and we get to live in that, and that is our reward. So that's kind of the why. But it also brings up an obvious question, who, right? And that's going to be our all play today. For those of you who are new to Genesis, we like to do all plays. We like to involve the voice of the chorus, not just the voice of the solo. So the question is, who are our enemies? Who are your enemies? If you've got an answer to that, you can go ahead and just shout it out. Go right ahead. Anybody? Who are our enemies? People I don't agree with. Thank you, Bob. Who are our enemies? People who have it out for you. Thank you very much. Injustice. Thank you. People who spread hate. Thank you, Abby. My own sin. Ooh, I like that one. Very good. The guy with the truck that passed me today. Thank you, Jerry. <clears throat> Thanks to you for stepping on my touchdown call because that's coming up here in a minute. Thank you. Anybody else? Neighbor snowblowing at 6 a.m. on a Sunday. Thank you, Brian. Yeah, I mean, and I think you, you hear sort of a thread through a lot of those, right? We, we start, when we hear, you know, love your enemy, we start thinking about our lives right here, right now. And that's not wrong. Steve talks about Midrash all the time, right? About that surf, there's a, you start with the surface level reading. And I think that's right there. What I want to encourage us to do is not stop there. Because we can think of this, like I said, on that surface level, that our enemy is the boss at work that's a jerk to us. Our enemy is the person that cut uh, Jerry off on the way to church today. Our enemy is the uncle that shows up at Thanksgiving and says the wrong thing every single year and sends the whole family into a tizzy. And the teaching ends up being understand their life, right? That you don't understand everything about their life. That that person, the, the boss at work that's being a jerk, well, maybe there's something going on with their family at home and that's why they're getting after us. So you say a prayer and say a blessing and let go of your annoyance. The person that cut Jerry off on the way to church today, maybe they're trying to get to the hospital because their, their kid's sick. So you say a blessing, say a prayer and let go of your annoyance. The uncle that shows up at Thanksgiving and says the wrong thing may have any number of problems. I don't know, I'm not gonna speculate. But you say a prayer, you say a blessing, you let go of your noise. And that's fine. That's, that's, that's fine. But I think there's something a whole lot bigger there. And it has to do with, I forget who said injustice, but it has, that's where we're going. Steve talked about it last week, about how the gospel is constantly trying to widen the circle of inclusion. And what I want to extend that to is our understanding of Scripture. There's a fancy seminary term called exegesis, which means simply that you're trying to understand what the original author was trying to say to the audience that was going to read and or hear that message first, which includes context and culture and timeliness. And once you understand that, then you pull back and apply it to your life. 
So if we look at this text, we have an itinerant rabbi in Jesus preaching to a group of probably very lower class Jews. And when he says enemy to those people, who is he talking about? Caesar, Rome. He's talking about the Romans. And not just Roman soldiers and not just Caesar and not just Roman aristocrats, but Rome as a system. Rome is an empire. Rome is an authority. Rome is an excuse for privilege. That's what he's talking about. So when we widen our gaze in that, in that way, I want to read another passage from, for you from Isaiah. A couple of weeks ago, I was in a scripture study, and we talked about Isaiah 58 on a completely other topic. I know some of you folks were there. But there was a couple of verses in there that stood out to me and speak to this, I think. And it's Isaiah chapter 58, verses 5 and 6. And they say this. Is such the fast that I choose, a day to humble oneself? Is it to bow down the head like a bulrush and to lie in sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? So you have Isaiah in this passage chastising Israel about fasting, about what fasting means and how fasting works. And he's saying it's not just about what are you setting aside, food, drink, whatever it is. We've got Lent coming up in a week and a half. And we've talked about previously at Genesis that setting stuff aside for Lent isn't just about, look how holy I am, I gave up chocolate. It's about setting something aside in order to create room in your life for God to fill that. And I think Isaiah's taken it even one step further and saying it's not just about God filling that space inside of you. It's about you then taking what he fills you with and pouring it outwards. And in Isaiah's case, he's talking about social justice for sure. But it's that outward flow, it's that outward-facing posture that I want to say applies equally to loving your enemy. It's not just about saying the prayer, saying the blessing, and let going of your annoyance. It's about what are you going to do to those who hurt you, who oppress you, who marginalize you. In verse 31 of Luke, if we go back to that passage, verse 31 is something we've heard a million times. Do to others as you would have them do to you. It's the golden rule, right? But the key word I want you to hear there is do. It is about what you do, regardless of what they do. It's not do to others before they do to you. It's not do to others what they do to you. It's do to others what you would have them do to you, regardless of what they actually do. It's that outward-facing posture. It's that outward flow that loving your enemies, that I think Jesus is getting at. But still, you want to know how that works. What is it, you know, give me something practical, Jesus. Don't just, don't just talk in big picture topics. Give me something practical, right? And he does. Jesus is famous for telling stories in his teachings, and he tells one here. And it's one that I think a lot of us are familiar with, but again, only on a surface level. If you look at verse 29 of Luke, verse 29 says, If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Now, before I dig into this one, I want to say one thing very, very clearly. This verse sometimes can be a trigger for people. We talk about striking and turning other cheeks. There are people in this room who are either victims of domestic violence or are close to people of domestic violence. And I want to say as clearly and loudly as I can that this, this teaching that I'm about to get into, is not that. Domestic violence is evil. It's irredeemable. It's unjustifiable. It's inexcusable. And nobody should have to turn the other cheek when it comes to domestic violence. This is not that. Underline it, boldface it, highlight it, whatever you got to do. 
Genesis is a place of safety. Genesis is a place of love. Genesis is a place of support. So if to the degree that you may feel triggered, know that you are loved here. Know that you are safe here. Okay? All right. Now, to get into this idea of this turning the other cheek, I actually kind of need to demonstrate something. I'm not actually going to hit anybody. <clears throat> My first thought when I got excited about this is, okay, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go prison rules on the bit. I'm going to find the biggest dude here, and I'm going to bring him up, and I'm going to pretend like I'm beating him around. This is gonna be... And then I went and stood next to Brian McWhite. And I didn't need a box or a chair or something. We just ruined the whole thing. So he was very gracious about it, volunteering. But my cousin Max is here today. Max, come on up. Everybody give it up for Max. The thing you got to know about Max is that he's a hockey player. And he's not just a hockey player. Uh, he's a goaltender, which means for recreational purpose, young Max has decided to put his body in between a goal and a six-ounce disc of frozen vulcanized rubber shot at him at a high velocity. Now, I don't say that to question young Max's decision-making skills. He's a very smart young man. I say that to say that Max is tough as nails, and if I actually cuffed him around, he could probably take me. So it's not going to happen. We are going to demonstrate this for you. So <clears throat> I want to read one other passage as I'm doing this. We're in the Sermon on the Plain in this version of Luke. We're far more familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, and that's in Matthew, right? And the teachings are very, very similar, but with some important wording differences, and that's why I want to read the portion of, of Matthew here. Matthew chapter 5, verse 39, the second half. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. Now, why would Matthew say right? And Luke says, doesn't use that term at all. There's a key here that I think unlocks the thread of the entire teaching. And I want to go through this. There's a picture Jesus is trying to create in the image of his hearers. And this right is what unlocks it. So if I'm a Roman soldier and Max is a Jewish peasant and I'm walking around and I decide, you know what, I have power and authority and privilege and he has nothing, I think I'll express that to everybody and I'm just going to knock him down for no reason because I can and there's nothing he can do about it. Well, if I'm going to hit Max, I'm not going to hit him with my left hand. Again, in that time and place and culture, left-handedness was seen as a defect, was seen as something to be ashamed of. So I'm not going to hit him with my left hand. But if I hit him with my right hand, if I ball up a fist and hit Max with my right hand, or if I even do an open palm strike, that's something you do to somebody who's a legitimate threat to you. And that's not the message that I'm trying to convey. I'm trying to convey that Max has, you know, is marginalized and, and is nothing, and I have the power and the privilege and authority. That's the social structure I'm trying to, sh to show here. So if I'm not going to hit him with my fist or my open palm, that only leaves one thing, the back of my hand, right? And if I hit Max with the back of my hand, I'm hitting him on his right cheek. That's the picture Jesus is trying to draw. When he says that, he knows instantly his audience is going to see that power structure, right? The Roman soldier who can exert his power and privilege and authority over the Jewish peasant with no response whatsoever because what's going to happen when I, you know, split Max's lip and knock him into the dirt, he's going to get angry, right? His amygdala is going to start firing. He's going to go fight or flight on the bit. Well, if he gets up and tries to fight me, well, I've got a sword and he probably doesn't. That's not going to end well. And if he is armed, I've got six buddies from my squad hanging around close by, and they're all more heavily armed than he is. That isn't going to end well for him. But if he just cowers in the dirt or if he gets up and runs away, he's just confirmed that power structure that I'm talking about. He's just confirmed that he has no power, no authority, no privilege, and I have that all. So it doesn't seem like he's got a lot of good options here. But Jesus says, no, there's a third way. There's a third thing Max can do, and that is offer me the other cheek, because if he turns and offers me the other cheek... I can't hit him with, daring me to hit him again in a nonviolent, non-aggressive way. I can't hit him with my left hand. But now if I'm going to hit him with my right hand, I mean, I can't, unless I'm going to run around over here and try to backhand, I mean, that backhand isn't going to work. So I've got to hit him with the fist or with an open palm strike, or I've got to not hit him at all. 
in any way you cut it, he's just flipped the script on me. Suddenly, I'm reacting to him. Suddenly, he's got power in this situation. He's forcing me to show that we are more even than I want to show. And that's the thread that gets woven throughout this teaching. Thank you, Max. Everybody give it up for Max again. He's very good at pretending to be hit. But if you go back to that Luke passage again, the second half of verse 29, so we did strike on the cheek, the second half of verse 29 says, and from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. There's third way thinking here too. Because if I'm a Roman official and I want to go snag somebody's coat because I kind of like it and what are they going to do about it, they're not going to wrestle it away from me. That wouldn't end well. And if they meekly hand it over, they confirm that structure that I'm talking about. But Jesus says, no, there's a third way. Give them your shirt too. Because you've got to remember, first century Palestine, it's warm, it's arid. Guy's probably wearing a cloak and a shirt and sandals. So if I take his cloak and this guy offers me a shirt, suddenly Mr. Happy's making an appearance. And this, you know, this is, ooh. And the thing about that culture is, <laughs> that's where I got Deva. Put that on the tape. That's where I got Deva. No, but in, the, in that culture, nudity wasn't just shaming to the person who was naked. It was shaming to anybody that saw it. So if I'm taking this cloak and suddenly this guy's giving me a shirt and, hey, no, just here, just take it back. That's fine. Just have it. I don't need to see that. Thank you very much. But again, it's that script flipping that I'm talking about. He's now forcing me to react to him. And we're all suddenly even in this social structure. One last one, and we're back to the Matthew passage. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 41, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. In that time and place, a Roman soldier could press gang somebody into carrying stuff for them. I have heavy armor, I have a heavy helmet, I have a heavy pack, I have heavy weaponry. You there, you're going to come carry this for me. Here, take my pack. But, because they were so benevolent, the Romans, you could only do that for one mile. And then you had to take your stuff back. We actually see this play out in the Passion narrative, right? Simon of Cyrene gets press ganged into carrying Jesus' cross. He had no choice in that. You, you're going to carry this. That's how it worked. So do you fight the guy initially? Do you just accept it meekly and, you know, confirm that structure? No, Jesus says there's a third way. And that third way is go a second mile. Because now that soldier has to make a decision. Is he actually going to physically try to wrestle his pack back from this Jewish peasant that he had carrying this for him? Is he going to risk getting in trouble? Getting court-martialed? Suddenly, that power structure, script gets flipped. Do you see the thread running through all of those? Now, <clears throat> when I first knew that I was doing this teaching, I got real excited because I'd heard, you know, this third way thinking applied to this before, and I thought that's really exciting because for me, I'm mostly a rule follower, mostly. It seems to be the most efficient way to get most things done. But when I do see authority being condescending and abusive and overpowering, I do like to poke the bear a little bit. And that's where this sort of fires up in me, right? It's like, yeah, stick it to the man. That's right. Yeah, love it, right? Except as I'm going through this teaching and I'm thinking about it, this gets positioned in a section about loving your enemies. And it's kind of hard to feel loving when you're sticking it to the man, right? So how does that work? How does that fit together? We have to go all the way back to Genesis. Chapter one. We are all created in the image of God. And no matter the power, the privilege, and the authority that you have amassed here on earth doesn't increase your image-bearingness any more than the person without any of those things. And the love in this teaching 
is simply offering in a nonviolent, non-aggressive way the opportunity for that person with privilege and power and authority who's forgotten that to be reminded of it. To say that power structure that you like to think is there really isn't. As we live into the kingdom, as the kingdom comes into its fullness, that power structure goes away because we are all, every single one of us, equally made in the image of our creator. That's the loving your enemy part. Which offered up, that was the first conviction that it offered up to me, is, hey, don't just stick it to the man. There's got to be love there. But there was a second conviction that I felt when I went through this, and this is the one I'm a little, a little anxious about. But here's the truth. If you look at this, if you have a Roman soldier and a Jewish peasant, and you put them on a spectrum of those with power and privilege and authority and those without, those that are the other, those that are marginalized, those that are oppressed. And I start thinking, where am I? In the last semester at Bethel, I read a book by Henry Nouwen that was on the uh, parable of the prodigal son. And in it, he takes you through that parable, living his experience and allowing the reader to live their experience into the story of the younger son, into the story of the elder son, into the story of the father. And I think there's useful teaching in how to approach scripture that way. We like to, when we read a story like this, put ourselves in the shoes of those people Jesus that is talking to. Whereas I would suggest it's also equally important to put yourself in the shoes of people Jesus is talking about. And in this case, again, if I'm going to be real honest, look, I am a white, cisgendered male who's a heterosexual, who's of the middle class, who, in a culture that oppresses literally none of those things, not one of them, and I'm a Christian, also not oppressed. In fact, when I was thinking about it, the only people that are more oppressed or less oppressed than me are rich white men. And I'm not being misogynistic when I single out rich white men. It's the fact that rich white women have to sometimes deal with the toxic masculinity of rich white men. And I can say that because I work for a company that was formerly owned by CBS Corporation, and I watched entirely too many anti-sexual harassment videos that were introduced by Leslie Moonves. If you don't know that story, Google it, just not in front of your kids. But the truth is that if I look at that spectrum, and it is a spectrum, it's not a binary. Nobody's all one, nobody's all the other. But if you look at a spectrum of privilege and power and authority to those who are other, those who are marginalized, those who are oppressed, and I'm going to be honest about where I am, I'm a whole lot more towards the end of the privilege and the powerful and the authority. I just am. That's not my fault. Those are the circumstances of my birth. But the opportunity it offers me in this teaching is to stop and say, if loving your enemy is about reminding them of your basic humanity, of your image-bearingness, then you can step into the shoes of those with power and privilege and authority and say, I need to be intentional about seeing the humanity, the basic image-bearing nature of every other human being. I can do that. That's part of this teaching for me. And I would suggest that it's an opportunity for all of us because I'm just going to be honest. As we look around, we're mostly white, not all of us, we're mostly suburban, not all of us. And we're mostly of the middle class, but not all of us. I think we all as a community, and this is why it's so important that we have advocacy teams with Micah and Bob. This is why it's so important we have giving teams. and The people that have that outward focus for our community, it's important that we're involved with those. It's important for each of us to stop and look at that spectrum and try to decide, where am I in this story? Because I think there's different ways you can read it. You can read it on a level where it's the person that cut Jerry in traffic off on the way to, to church here today. 
and say a blessing and say a prayer and let go of your annoyance. That's perfectly valid. You can also find yourself in situations where you are being marginalized, where you are being shoved to the side, and it's okay in those situations to stop and say, how do I remind these people of my image-bearing nature? It's also okay, and it's probably important, to stop and look at this teaching and say, how am I looking past the other? How am I looking past those who are being marginalized, who are being oppressed? Because, again, as all those things I mentioned of myself, I can live my life in perfectly, perfect normalcy and not see any of that if I don't want to, if I'm not intentional about it, if I'm not purposeful about it. There's a lot of levels to this teaching. And there's a lot of different ways to enter into it. And at different phases of your life, you'd enter into it in different ways, but it helps to know that they're there as you look through this passage, as you look through this uh, part of Scripture. Amen? Amen. Amen.